Any of you like amusement parks? Like roller coasters? Well, you're in the right place. Because when I speak, it's a little bit like a roller coaster ride. You kind of show up in the lobby, everything gets going, and then you get closer to the front of the line, get a little nervous, because you're about to board whatever truck or train that's going to take you through the process, and then clickety-clack, 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 right, all the way up to the top, and then, woo, yay, and then clack, 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 oh, you get to the stop, you go, oh, that was great, oh, I don't feel so good. So anyway, just giving you a heads up on, it'll be a little bit of a ride like that this afternoon with me. And so I am grateful to be here. Uh, I met Tim Jennings years ago in 2016 at the Love and Transformation Symposium, which actually launched our organization later. And then we hosted another symposium in 2019 called the Mayday Symposium, which was on anxiety, depression, and suicide. And we had Tim come and speak in Scottsdale for us. And it kind of led to this whole thing, and he invited us to come back and speak. So obviously I did okay that day. So he's decided to have me come back. So thank you, Tim. And uh, right here up on the screen is a picture of a wave. And uh, you'll notice that this wave is pretty much the backdrop of every screen that I have. And the reason I have chosen this wave as the backdrop to all of my other imagery is because I think it's, sim uh, it's symbolic of what is happening today in our culture. There is a mental health wave that has hit our society like we haven't seen, maybe ever. And it's come upon us that way. I grew up in Southern California. I spent a lot of time in the ocean, bodyboarding and surfing. If you know anything about waves, they come in sets, about every 12 seconds. And the biggest ones aren't normally the first ones. They're somewhere in the middle or toward the end. So here's the thing, this mental health wave that we have seen in our culture, I don't think it's fully hit us yet, especially with the pandemic that we were just experiencing and all the chaos in our society and culture, the division, the things that are going on. We're in for a really interesting time. And so I wanted to let you know about that wave. And then also on your program, I have to apologize for this up front, the actual title of my talk is Competition and Character. I mean, pretty vanilla, maybe, a little accessible. In actuality, my talk probably should be titled this, the, the title of uh, the book that I'm releasing uh, early next year, <laughs> Sledding with a Serial Killer. That is actual title of the book. Um, how to Stay Safe in a Culture That's Killing Us. And so what you're going to hear today in this talk is really the content uh, of this book. And so uh, I had an amazing artist from Disney Pixar who was able to draw it for me. And, and really the sledding with the serial killer metaphor is that we're in this society and culture uh, of the West, and we are encouraged and told in so many different ways to pursue happiness and define it yourself, and it's all... Uh, defined by emotion, and everybody's kind of white-knuckling the happiness in the West, trying to figure it out. And yet what they don't realize is this ride that they're on with our society and culture could actually cause their death. And for some people, it does. And so I'm, there are elements and threads of mental health that I'm going to speak about today, and so I'd like to give you real quickly this disclaimer before I start my talk. Mental health is a very complex issue, and that one that must be handled with great respect and sensitivity. My approach is a cultural one. It's not clinical or scholastic, though it may reference terminology or information from these points of view. My perspective is focused on the effects of our moment in time. So I am taking a cultural observation view 
of this issue. It is a perspective that is informed by lived experience with mental health conditions, not only my own, but also family members. And over a decade's worth of personal research, it is driven by a cultural observation and interaction in the for-profit and non-profit sectors, world-class athletics, and entertainment. Though I may paint a specific portrait and speculate about the current epidemics, it is not done in effort to dismiss or devalue other perspectives on mental health. My goal is to be helpful and thoughtful and add to the critical conversation. And that's really what sledding with a serial killer is all about. Can anybody tell me who this band is? I heard it somewhere. 21 Pilots, of course. Someone who's back in the, yep, we're not even gonna talk about it, but great. Yes, 21 Pilots. Who in here has heard of 21 Pilots? A few, other than the one who answered. Um, so if you haven't heard of 21 Pilots, I'm going to introduce you to them. I just did. I took you to Coachella, the festival in Palm Desert that happens every year where all these bands get together and play. Here's the thing about 21 Pilots, if you don't know this. You will have a difficult time finding another band that has grown in popularity as quickly as they have from like 2016 to 2019 around the world. These guys travel and play shows, and they are resonating with culture, particularly a younger, uh, younger generation of culture. And so the reality is when something like that happens, I'm kind of a weird guy. I go, okay, what's going on behind the scenes? Like, I want to try to figure out what these guys are doing, what's actually happening that's causing them to resonate so much. Well, if you were, if you were able to look at their lyrics and, and understand those, here's what you would see. Tyler Joseph, the lead singer, has not hidden from his lyrics his own personal and deep struggle with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. And he sings about it, and he writes about the struggle and the difficulty and the things that are going on inside of his heart and the struggle. And so that reality has connected with so many people, bringing them hope in the midst of great suffering. Because here's what's going on in our society. There's been a rise in epidemics, massive rise in epidemics. Loneliness, stress, anxiety, depression, suicide have increased immensely. 70% increase in ages 15 to 24 age group in the most recent CDC report. Second leading cause of death. I know Katie referenced earlier, it's the first leading cause of death in Arizona. So yeah, there they are, lovely, lovely people. Fantastic guys doing great work actually around the world. And they're one of five or six bands that I could tell you about that are having this kind of impact because they're speaking to the culture the way artists do. Artists have a way of talking to us and speaking to us like nothing else can. And so these epidemics that are rising, these guys are writing about it in their own personal experience, and as a result, they travel the world and people show up and they resonate. They have a whole following called the click. So I took my boys to see 21 Pilots because I'm a fan, and I'll explain that to you here in just a second. I took my boys to see 21 Pilots back uh, about a year and a half ago in Boise, where I'm from. Boise, Idaho, great place. You never want to go there. <laughs> I've, I've affectionately nicknamed it boise Fornia because all the people are moving from California to Boise. Anyway, a little sidebar. I told you, you know, ride, bends, loops, 
roller coaster. Squirrels. Anyway, so <laughs> I took my boys to see this band, and it was an amazing show. Like, when you look at the click, though, there's people of all different age ranges. It's not just millennials or Gen Z, people under the age of 30. I mean, there are people like y'all in there. And, you know, a little more seasoned. Have a few, you know, year, years under your belt, and uh, a little bit of tread on the tires have been, you know, worn out, I guess. Hey, don't worry, I'm getting there. I didn't used to be bald like this. But now I am. And so I took my boys to see him, and it was an amazing experience to watch the kind of hope that these guys gave. And so to be very personal with this is their lyrics, as I've read them, read them and listened to the songs, it spoke to me and helped explain a very significant and dark period of my life in my 20s when I struggled personally with anxiety, depression, and thought about taking my life. And so I'm going to share that story with you right now through the form of this blue toolbox right here. This is my toolbox. It is not your toolbox. I want to make that very clear. So do not try to touch it. On it, it has drywall and dust and whatever, and I just dug it out because of COVID. I haven't been speaking a lot. It's been stuck in an old barn, um, hibernating. And so today, inside this toolbox is a bunch of tools. And this is what this toolbox represents, because every single one of us gets one of these. Okay, yours might be camouflage or like bright pink or fluorescent green or some other color. Mine's blue, and it's titled The Companion. Do you see that? Old Sears toolbox. Everyone gets one of these, and what it represents is at points in your life when you grow and develop, hopefully you're developing the kind of tools you need that are necessary for dealing with the demands of reality as you grow and change. And life presses in on you and the temperature gets turned up and you face difficult situations, you have to access your toolbox and figure out what's in it. Do you have the kind of tools to deal with all of life? This happened for me about 23 years old. We get these tools from our family or from culture, media. Some of the tools are really good. Other tools are not so good. So when I started confronting anxiety and depression around my early 20s, I had to open my toolbox and see if I had tools in there that were going to help me live all of life. And here's what I found. Kind of an old hammer. I'll pick it up later, okay? I'll make a little mess. Craft scissors. Not very good. Some dirty string. A little 60 cent tape measure from Home Depot. Phillips head screwdriver, with which if any of you have used these knows there's flathead screwdrivers too. So I could only unscrew some things, not everything. That's helpful. These, I'm, they're called something. Like some, somebody in here will know what these are called. Pliers. And the funny part is I actually remodel houses and stuff, but I still don't know what these are. Pliers, but they have a technical name. And I don't remember what they are. Anyway, those were in there. Flashlight that doesn't work. That's not helpful. And then a paint stick. Exactly, right? That you need these things and all these tools. And then a Sharpie. Everyone's got to have a Sharpie. Well, these tools, like this is the equivalent of what I had in my toolbox when I was 23 years old. And I don't know if you guys are noticing, but if you set out to do high-level remodel with that set of tools right there, how far are you going to get? Not very far. Thank you very much. I appreciate the sympathy. And so this was the set of tools I had. And um, 
I didn't have the uh, kinds of tools that I needed to deal with the demands of reality that I was facing at that time in my life. And when that pressure gets turned up, you better have what you need. And life is a little bit like a high-level remodel. I don't know if any of you have experienced this or have ever done remodel. You get in a house, you start opening walls, you go, ooh, there's a pipe there. I didn't expect that. What are we going to do now? Or there's a post, or I can't move that beam. Right? Life can, can present great challenges for you. And so I had this happen to me, and when that happened, I got frustrated because that's what would happen if you try to remodel with an insufficient set of tools. You will get frustrated. And the truth is, that showed up as anxiety and depression in my life is exactly what happened. And so as I continued to progress, God was very kind to me because I became a follower of Jesus at 13 years old. At 23, I'm experiencing anxiety and depression. Some people would look at that and go, you're not actually a follower of Jesus. You can't be anxious and depressed as a follower of Jesus, can you? Yes, you can. And so God took me on this journey of maturity because what I realized is I hadn't really matured into adulthood very well. Um, I had a couple of things going on in my life, family of origin stuff. I was raised in a great home in Southern California. Everything was provided for me, but there was verbal and emotional abuse in my home. You guys have listened to Tim all day today, right? We know why people exit the way that they do from homes that are abusive and have trauma. That was my story. But I also had a second element to it. I was a high-level competitive athlete. I played uh, competitive golf at every level, seven years professionally. So from a young age, I was always in this format of low-grade anxiety. Now, I, I don't know if any of you have ever, ever had the chance to tee a ball up in front of a bunch of other people, <laughs> stick it in the ground, tee it up, and then have to hit it straight, right? That'll make you anxious if you're not very good and the people are close. Now, there's not a lot of people on golf courses these days because of COVID, but uh, anyway. So I had a regular... Uh, environment where I was having to tee it up and, and compete against others. I'm 44 years old. There's another player. Um, his name's Tiger Woods. He's 44, and he grew up in Southern California. So try growing up playing against a prodigy. <laughs> That'll make you anxious. And so not only did I have this family of origin stuff, but I had this competitive aspect of my life. And so, but as I progressed through my 20s, God gave me the gift of a couple of other tools. When I went back in, in my toolbox and looked, I realized that there were two other tools that were present there. And upon discovery, this is what I found, love and people. These two amazing tools that God had given me to help me mature out of what I was going through in my life and to experience something different. The reality of those who cared about my well-being coming alongside me and loving me in areas where I needed it, and then also journeying with me in that process and giving me advice and encouragement and help along the way. God gave me these two amazing tools. And those tools became to me like this. They do actually make tools that are helpful in remodel, like really high-level tools like this. You ever seen one of these? A reciprocating saw, it'll cut through anything. Metal, wood, steel, if you heat it up a little bit. But these, this thing gets the job done. Mine's dirty because I use it a lot. But this is the kind of tools that I needed to live all of life. And God gave that to me through, through love and relationship with people. And so as I enter into my talk on sledding with a serial killer, I wanted to share with you my personal story to kind of frame this. 
because what I'm going to talk to you about is a dynamic that's going on in our society today that I think all of the things that Tim has talked about, some of the things that Katie has introduced, there's this bigger kind of global perspective of what's happening in the West that I think is causing uh, a lot of this in our lives. Um, and so one passage from the scriptures that was really helpful to me was this one, as I matured, and I began to see this perspective, and this is kind of where I sit now. Our joy is found in the hope of full restoration into beings possessing godlike character. Because of this, we rejoice in our trials and afflictions, for we know that trials bring to light our shortcomings and defects of character. If we persevere, choosing God's methods, the defects are removed and character is purified, and pure character increases our hope for God's kingdom. And our hope will not be disappointed because God pours out his love into our hearts and thereby matures, ennobles, and restores us into his image by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us, Romans 5, 2 through uh, 5, from the remedy, which is Tim's paraphrase that you all may be familiar with. Did you ever think that the reality of the Holy Spirit coming to indwell you is God's love being poured into you, and it becomes the agent of transformation in your life? This is what I have come to understand, overhauling my character, making me more like Jesus, giving the tools, me the tools that I need to live uh, and, and deal with all the demands of reality, the stuff that's pressuring coming against me in my life. The Holy Spirit is transforming me in love to be able to deal with those things. And so here we go to culture. This is a Pew uh, Research report that came out. They surveyed a bunch of teens. And the number one problem that teens are dealing with today, 70% of them say it's anxiety, depression, anxiety and depression, not bullying, not drug addiction, not drinking alcohol, not poverty, teen pregnancy, or gangs. It's anxiety and depression. For the next generation, this is their issue. This is what will define them, their future. This is what they're trying to overcome. So it forces us to have to ask the question, what's going on? Why are all these epidemics increasing? I got increasingly frustrated with the reading and research that I was doing in different reports, and this is normally how it would go. There is a rise in the epidemics in our culture. Then they would give you a bunch of statistics. Then they, acknowledging it's a problem. Then they would say, we don't have enough behavioral health services. And then they would say, we don't know why. And they'd move on. No conclusions. I was like, come on, give us an answer. The experts need to give us an answer. Now, I think Tim does a great job of giving us answers. But a lot of these articles that I was reading and research I was doing, I wasn't getting any answers, and that was frustrating to me. I'm like, there's got to be an answer to this. Some people believe this is the reason it's happening, the rectangles. It's all the rectangles' fault. It's your phone's fault. The reason the kid down the street just died by suicide is because of the rectangle. Now, has digital technology had an influence? I think it has. But I think it's more what's going on inside the digital technology than the digital technology itself. And there's a book, this gal, Jean Twenge, she's a professor from San Diego State University. She wrote this book called iGen, and she talks about the release of the smartphone and the rise of the epidemics from 2007 till now. She correlates the two things, trying to develop a conclusion that there is some relationship, but it doesn't really go much further than that. People are out there trying to figure this out, and a lot of times the experts don't give us the kind of information we need sometimes. 
So this I found to be very helpful. This is Dr. Robert Krosno. He is uh, the head of the sociology department at University of Texas, Austin, and he says this. There really isn't data that shows a strong correlation between these two things, he says, basically being digital technology and the rise of all of the epidemics. I think there's an increase in mental health issues. The, the, the increase is real and something we need to be concerned about. But until we know exactly what's causing it, I don't think it's so easy for us to put the blame on any one thing, Krosno says, to explain the phenomenon. You have to look at the entire context of the historic moment we're living in. I think we're living in a time of great uncertainty. No, we're not. No. That was, that was being sarcastic. Where people are unsure about the future of the country? No way. No, this, is, this guy's a liar. But also their own futures, he says, and, that, and that's anxiety-provoking for anybody, but it's especially true for young people whose future is ahead of them. I think Krosno gives us a very interesting perspective into this issue that we're talking about. And so I think in trying to illustrate what I think the overarching condition is, you know, Katie talked a lot about comparison. I'm going to take it a level higher than that. I would say that our society today, the operating system that the rest the West runs on is what I would call competitive society. We have a culture, you just look around you, and it's all about competition. Who's going to be the best, the biggest, the brightest, the fastest? the achievement, the ambition, the drive, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more here in just a second. But as we talk about competitive society, what we really need first is we need a model. Ironically, Katie and I, we've spoken together before. We use the same slide to describe the model. The iceberg model, here you go, of culture. There's the visible and the invisible. The visible being, as I would describe it, above ground, it's behavior. This is a model that came from Edward Hall in 1976. He's a sociologist. That little piece of the iceberg above ground is the behavior. It's what you see people doing. Below ground is everything driving that. And so there's a lot of things that are happening behind the scenes in our culture that are driving people's behavior. We've talked a lot about digital technology today, social media, Instagram, the ability to keep up, parading happiness, everybody else's happiness in front of you at the speed of light constantly. Their fabricated happiness, right? The false posts about their non-real life and it's constantly going on, that's going to drive our behavior. And so where this all began for me was with this book right here. This is a book called The Happiness Industry by William Davies. He is a sociologist at the University of London. This book is actually about competitive economics in the West. The first five chapters go through that economic condition and setting of the U.S. and U.K. post-World War II. It's a bit technical, but if you like to read that stuff, knock yourself out or just listen to it on Audible. And then you'll get to a point in the book where he says, basically asks this question, what can we say that the competitive societies of the West have actually given us? And his conclusion is a depressive disorder. And he goes on to document how the reality of competition is one of the primary, if not the greatest cause of anxiety and depression. And he shows 1960, then 70s, release of antidepressants and those drugs. You get into the 80s and they were documenting a suicide epidemic among footballers in England and they started going to the government saying, we need help because these guys are taking their lives. What do we do about that? And so when I was reading this book, 
I was like, whoa, this competitive thing, like I never really thought about this as a cause of anxiety and depression. And I actually thought about a friend of mine who was supposed to be here and speak last, but I'll be filling his spot this afternoon. And that's my co-founder from Love and Transformation Institute, Kent Delhousay. Because Kent stepped down in 2016 as a lead pastor of a megachurch in Phoenix having suicidal ideation. And I'm like, I think this whole competition thing had something to do with it. Because the pastor, it's not competitive, is it? Like churches aren't competing with each other, are they? Yes, they are. Great answer. I like having you in the front row with me. (laughs) So I went to him and we're meeting in his office and I'm like, Kent, here's the deal. I think this was a part of your story. I think some of what happened to you was this this competitive dynamic that was driving. And he goes, oh, totally. That's totally part of my story. And he goes, well, what about you? And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, well, weren't you a professional golfer? And I'm like, well, yeah, but what does that have to do with it? (laughs) As if I didn't spend my entire life competing, chasing a little white ball around and being judged by my score. People come up to you and they go, what'd you shoot today? And I'm like, 84. Well, I know some of you play golf, and 84 is actually a really good score for a lot of you (laughs) playing golf. It's not good for a professional golfer, in case you're wondering. It would be quite embarrassing. But the reality was, is like, for the first time, I was like, oh my goodness, I had never accounted for competition in my life as a cause for my anxiety and depression. And he looked at me and said, you need to go write about this. You need to go talk about it because you're the perfect guy to speak on it. Not only did you do it, you worked with it for a decade with professional athletes. Because after my playing career, I was a chaplaincy in professional baseball and in professional golf, working with people, helping them navigate personal and professional issues. So I've seen it, entertainment industry as well, up close, what competition really causes in the minds of people. And this competitive dynamic is very present in our culture today amongst the young people, and I'll get there in just a second. So I actually tell in Sledding with a Serial Killer, I tell the competitive dynamic in the form of the four horsemen of competitive society. That's them. One is named academic, one is named economic, one is named consumeristic, and one is social. So I'm first going to introduce you to the economic horseman. The economic horseman is this, a competition for power playing itself out in markets, politics, and industry. We don't see any of this, do we? We don't see Reebok competing with Nike, Nike competing with Under Armour and Asics and all for market share, and then we get into technology. We see Amazon competing with Facebook, Facebook with Snapchat, TikTok. Uh, Who am I leaving out? Apple, they're kind of a small player in the whole deal. No one's competing with anyone for industry and market share. And by the way, we have an election coming up, right? What is the single characteristic that determines what a good president is? How the economy does. I'm going to say something about that in a little bit. There's all kinds of periphery issues that they love to talk about, but end of the day, what determines whether a president is a good president? How does the economy do? Why? Because the economy drives the Western society. If the economy fails, all the West fails. It's important for us to know. Next, horsemen, academic. There's a competition for ideas and a future playing itself out in our schools and universities. Anybody see that scandal that happened where people were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for their kids to get into USC and Yale and Georgetown and all those places, Felicity Huffman and what was the one gal who was on all the wholesome things on Hallmark? Lori Laughlin, right? 
thousands of dollars to get their kids into these universities. But the reality is, and that's kind of that competitive aspect of trying to get a credential that would propel you and using the university to do so, an indoctrination of sorts is the other piece. It's a battle for the philosophical ideas of our culture and what gets accepted and what does not get accepted. And if they don't like your idea today, you're canceled. That's what happens in our society. And there's been indoctrination going on in our education system for a long time because those ideas control society. It's a competition for what's accepted and what's not accepted. Next one is consumeristic. Competition for our time playing itself out in our wallets and on our week nights and weekends. So this is happening all around us. And by the way, the economy of the West is driven by what? Consumerism. It's great because the government gave you a bunch of money during COVID to go spend to keep the economy going. I'm just saying. This consumeristic piece I'm going to illustrate through the professionalization of youth sports because this is something that's pretty close to me. Um, Today, if you don't know, athletes at a younger age are treated like professionals. It's absolutely ridiculous. Just the other day, I was standing or sitting outside in my truck at a local high school in Boise, Idaho, where I live. Big school, looking at the back of the bleachers of the stadium. And up on top are all of these uh, banners that have been printed of every football player on the football team, these beautiful-looking banners. And they're all standing there like, yeah, you know, like that, and holding on to their pads and ball and whatever. I'm like, they look like pros. It's like, when did we get here? Worse than that, they stick the microphone in their face on the news every night, and it's like, well, how was the game out there this weekend? And they're like, they sound like pros. They're like, well, we're a big family out there, and we were hanging out, and you know, we, we did a great job, and coach did his job, we did our job, and we just, and I'm like, oh my goodness, how did these high school athletes now become professionals? That's because here's what's changed. When I was playing baseball growing up, one game a week, one practice, I would go to the game, after it was over, I'd get a a flat of cheesy, nasty nachos and big league chew, and my buddy and I'd go sit in the bleachers, we'd watch a game, go home, mow the lawn, ride our bikes, and that was life. Today, if you're a good young athlete, it's club ball. It's 365, 24-7, and now you have a pitching coach and a hitting coach, an agility coach. It's constant activity. They treat them like little professionals. Everything's got their name on it, and they have all the gear. And it's money, money, money being pumped into sports. And do you think any of that, if competition is a cause of anxiety, depression, is propelling that in the next generation inside of them? Yes, I would say it is. So here's a great one. Dear mom and dad, thanks for screaming at the umpires because the parents are the worst, actually. It's not actually the little kids that are playing. It's the parents. Thanks for screaming at the umpires and the other parents the entire game. You're the best. Or how about this one? This is from an ice rink in Chicago. Please remember, these are kids. This is a game. Parents should cheer for everyone. The referees are human. You and your child do not play for the Blackhawks. <laughs> and then the smaller writing, it says, if you don't understand this, please contact the ice department. We'd be happy to explain it to you. But this is the dynamic. I mean, you see people lose their minds on fields all over the country. And they get in fights, parents getting in fights. What a great display for the kids who are trying to just have fun. This is where we've come to. The last one, the social competition. This is uh, a competition for who's happiest and most respected playing itself out in non-reality, social media and gaming. It's a game that nobody wins. 
This is that competition I was referring to earlier when you're swiping through as quickly as you can and happiness being paraded in front of you. And who's going to be, now you're not only being compared to your neighbor, you're compared to Beyonce and everybody else for the happiest life possible. That's one part. The other one is this gaming part where people are finding so much respect in life because of their ability in a gaming format. And so this social competition has moved outside of the sphere, and, and Katie alluded to this, outside of the sphere of just being in close proximity to one another into digital platforms that follow us everywhere. And so that's the four horsemen of competitive society. Now I want to talk about the dynamics behind that, and this is what I call the competitive cocktail. What are the elements philosophically that are driving this competitive society? And it's four things. Ambition, competition, humanism, and relativism. I'm going to go through these very quickly. Ambition is your drive. It's your desire to achieve, acquire, perform, succeed. If you're an ambitious person in the West, and we love to glorify this, if you come here and work hard, you'll make a living for yourself and you'll do great. The ambitious people do well in the Western society. Those who are wired that way and really driven, they're going to do fantastic. They might deal with low-grade anxiety and depression, but they're going to do great. Other people who maybe aren't wired as, as ambitiously or as driven don't do so hot. That's just a reality of it. The second part is the competition. I referenced this earlier. As I've been referring to Western society, the condition that kept coming up in articles and research that I was reading was neoliberalism. Now, to your ear, that might sound like a political term. It's actually an economic term that is for the competitive free markets of the West. I read a research report that was a meta-analysis of 41,000 college students from 1989 to 2016. You can find this report on the American Psychological Association. US, UK, and Canada is where these students came from. And they were studying why the rise in all the epidemics in their lives. And ultimately what it showed is that what was happening in the culture propelled a hyper-perfectionism in their life. And this term, neoliberalism, kept coming up the competition, the underlying pressure and competition to succeed and achieve. The third one, humanism. So those are those first two. The third one, humanism, is the authority of self verified by emotion. So this is self-defining by the human on all things. Happiness, love, make it up for yourself, define it yourself, and then judge it by how you feel about it. If you feel good about it, it must work. If you don't, get rid of it. This is a philosophical condition of our society coupled with relativism, absence of meaning, morality, and ethics. So there's no anchors. What do we hold on to? What, are, what gives us the structures of society? What can we, what's stable that can give us the things that we can point to that will guide us and direct us and be a strong foundation? They're just not there. And so when people hear me talking about this, you know, they're like, it sounds like you're against competition. And I say, it doesn't really matter what I think. What my opinion is on competition is irrelevant. The reality is this is the West. It's the, it's the society you're living in, and it is not changing tomorrow. You have to figure out how you're going to live in it in a healthy way. Because when I talk to people mostly, what they tell me is this. This is what it feels like. One wall is pressure. The other wall is competition. And they're squeezing in on their life. And one of the things that changed as that... Uh, William Davies goes into in the book Happiness Industry is in about the 60s, meaning and morality, the bigger things of society, like living for something bigger than self, like your faith, your church, your family, or country, was removed and extracted. Because remember, relativism, there's no meaning and morality. 
We have to do something to create value, so what's gonna create the value? Data and metrics. That's why now everything's like, what are the metrics? What's the data say? That's what everybody wants to know. If you like baseball, it's like, what are all, what's the data say? What are the numbers? So everything's been reduced down to a bullet point and a number versus something bigger and sustainable. And so this is a, a quote from a, a book by, uh, from William Davies' book about another guy. And he says, American psychologist Tim Kasser has revealed that aspirational values oriented around money, status, power are linked to a higher risk of depression and lower sense of self-actualization. Whenever we measure our self-worth relative to others, as all competitions force us to do, we risk losing our sense of self-worth altogether. Okay, so I think I've made my case about competition. I'm not saying that it's bad, you just have to figure out how you're gonna live in it in a healthy way. So my explanation, and so when it all kind of crystallized and came together was when I heard about this guy, Emile Durkheim. He was a French sociologist from the late 1800s, released a book titled Suicide, had four typologies of suicide in the book. Because at the core for me, what I was trying to figure out is why the increase in suicide? Why are so many people deciding that they want to take their lives and feel okay about it? He has four typologies, like I said, in this book. One of those typologies is this, anomic suicide. Listen to this description. Durkheim linked this type of suicide to disillusionment and disappointment, resulting from a condition where social and moral norms are confused, unclear, or simply not present. He coined the sociological term anime, meaning a sense of aimlessness, despair, and social disconnection that arises from the inability to reasonably expect life to be predictable. In this kind of society, individuals lack a sense of social regulation and feel unguided in the choices they have to make. He also believed that the lack of norms led to deviant behavior. Anime is propelled by periods of rapid social, economic, political, I added technological, change that leads to an inability to regulate emotion. As an expression of suffering, people begin taking their lives because they emotionally destruct. They are not able to regulate. To me, I go, it makes perfect sense when you look around, especially for young people. That's why you see suicides like the girl in Massachusetts. Maybe some of you saw this. 17-year-old girl, National Honor Society, intact family, wakes up one morning, makes her bed, walks to a bridge, and jumps. Leaves behind a backpack with two journals full of self-loathing. No explanation, no, di no diagnosed anxiety and depression. People are not functioning well in our culture. This is another example of it. UCLA and Cigna Healthcare got together and did a study and put out a report called the Loneliness Index. That's because one in six people in the workplace were filing for long-term leave due to mental health issues. What this reveals is the loneliest generation on the planet is Gen Z. But there's a loneliness epidemic at the, at the core of it as well. Here's what we need, and this is gonna be the downhill run to the finish here where you come into the lobby again, okay? So that's where we're at on the ride. We're about ready to be done. That pressure and competition is not going away. What we need is anchors. We need things that are valuable. We need to be feel, feel guided and we need to be supported by meaningful relationships, meaningful work, those kinds of things that we can hold on to that are stable because you have to decide how you're going to participate in it and you don't have to say yes to everything. I tell people that functioning in this society, a lot of the people that I coach and work with is about saying no more than saying yes. And so this is what we need. So as us in here, what can we do? 
as followers of Jesus in this room, what can we do? Because trying to find solutions to this and things that work can feel a little bit like this. This is the Pacific garbage patch. Try finding anything valuable in that. It might be in there somewhere, but it's going to be difficult to find. But what we have is this, hope. We have the greatest message of hope in the world, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of our soul, but the transformation of our life that overhauls our character through the love of God and makes us into the kind of people that can sustain this pandemic or whatever's going on. I say, I, I say that a lot of people have today p- pandemic paralysis, which is basically this. People do not know how to think philosophically about life. They don't know how to think about how to live in it. And a crisis exposes two things. One, the first thing it exposes is what you really believe. The second thing it, it exposes is what you can handle. And I would say that our society and culture is as much a philosophical crisis as anything else. People don't know how to think about life. We can bring them hope. And the way this hope shows up is in four areas in our life. And I think this is really important. My next message, I, you, will, you will see that I will unpack this more. Ironically, when I started studying the love of God, it was about 13 years ago. It started in this city. And that was the last time I was here. So it's pretty cool to be back here speaking about this. But these four areas actually come from the great commandment of Jesus, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Soul is actually first on this. But our life has like these tanks that are filling up and depleting of uh, a relational health and emotional health, intellectual and vocational. All it takes is for one of those tanks to deplete below the dangerous line and someone is in danger of being in crisis and potentially dying by suicide. And so these tanks help us to understand, to, to be relational, relationally healthy and have good relationships, to be emotionally healthy in, our, in that part of our life, intellectually healthy, to think well about life, and to think rightly about and engage rightly our vocations. And so like it was said at the introduction, I started an organization with my co-founder called Love and Transformation Institute. How are we doing this? By leaning in and doing things like this for people. The one on the left is the four dimensions of human health. It's our personal development curriculum. And we take people through how to grow healthy in those four areas that we talked about, those four dimensions. And then we launched a podcast to couple with that curriculum where we talk about it on a regular basis and people can engage and listen in. And so we're making our efforts. My challenge to you today, if this is truly real, if it resonated with you, if you think that we're in a competitive society... I would encourage you to sit down and go, how can you bring hope to others? But that hope, that reality of that hope has to be true of your life first. But God has given us a precious gift to take to everyone. Thank you very much.